Our first reading comes from 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. And Acts 2, 42 to 47 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And finally, Acts 6, 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the, all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to reflect with you on those uh, last two passages in particular. So it'd be great if you just had it somewhere handy so you can check that what I say corresponds. So I've been asked to speak about the ideal of the church as a compelling community. And uh, this invitation coincided I mean, literally coincided with my uh, finishing a book on the bullies and saints of Christian history. It is literally a century-by-century century account of the blessings and curses the church has bestowed on the world. Now, I tell you this uh, not as an advertisement for the book, which is not out for quite a few months, 
I tell you this because I want you to know that I know the church hasn't always lived up to the ideals we're going to be exploring in that central paragraph today. Uh, yes, the church has done wonderful things. It is true that the church established the first hospitals in world history. The original charitable organizations that still exist today. The church gave us public schools and universities. Yes, 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 yes. But it has also traded in bigotry and hatred and power plays. And I've spent the last year writing all about those things. And I don't just mean the sort of cliched examples of the Crusades and the Inquisitions, sure. I mean things like the rank anti-Semitism that started in the church as early as the third century and then infected Europe. I'm thinking of the fourth century Christian riots in Egypt, which led to the complete destruction of priceless pagan monuments and even led to the murder of a famous female philosopher named Hypatia. And I'm thinking about the 21st century child abuse and cover-ups, which was, I admit, the hardest chapter of them all to write. I guess the most uh, one can say in response to all of that kind of thing is that the bullies of Christian history are traitors to the ideals taught by Jesus. They are traitors to the ideals presented in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. As I said uh, last week, this paragraph seems deliberately constructed to present an ideal of the church. The book of Acts uh, covers the first 25 years of Christian history, from Jesus' resurrection to the time the Apostle Paul got to uh, Rome. But here we're in the first year, and this paragraph follows the very first sermon ever preached by the Apostle Peter. And he preaches, and 3,000 people are converted and baptized, and then our paragraph picks up by saying they did a whole bunch of things. That is, the, the they is the first church, that new 3,000-person strong church. And Luke lists at least six ideals of compelling Christian community. The first, as we saw last week, was that the Christians uh, formed themselves into a kind of educational community. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time, you might say maybe an inordinate amount of time last week, just on the words of verse 42, uh, part A. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we drilled down on that, as Jen mentioned uh, a moment ago, we drilled down on the Christians as an educational community. And I, and I made the point, and I meant it quite seriously, that if you were a pagan Greek or Roman in, say, the first century, right through to the fifth century, and you walked into a church of that period, you would probably think that you had entered a school or a philosophy club 
not a religious cult. Because what you would find in those churches was students. That's what the word disciple means. Students who were attentive to texts that were read out, who were attentive to lectures given on those texts, who rehearsed and memorized a fixed curriculum known as the Apostles' Teaching. And I made the point that the first Christians, sadly unlike a lot of modern Christians, were complete nerds about theology. But they weren't just nerds. That's what I want to talk about today. They were also family. Family. They were committed to one another just as much as they were to certain texts and authoritative teachings. In fact, devotion to the apostles' teaching led to devotion to communities of love. And I have two very simple points uh, for you this afternoon. And I promise I don't follow it up with some sneaky sub-points like I did last week. Just two points. Uh, The compelling Christian community described here shares life and shares resources. Let me take them in turn. Firstly, shares life. Notice the very next thing Luke, the author of Acts, says about this brand new church. Verse 42, yes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also to something else, and to fellowship, it says. Now, I I like the word fellowship, Uh, It's a good translation of the word that's there in the original Greek. The problem is it's a kind of non-word nowadays in English. When do we ever use fellowship? I mean, academics talk about getting an academic fellowship. Um, There are medical fellowships, I guess. The the, the Lord of the Rings fans use the word fellowship on a daily basis, you know, thinking of themselves to be part of the fellowship of the ring and all all that sort of thing. But outside of that, we don't use the word fellowship. So, so what does it mean? Well, the original word used here, koinonia, koinonia is a rich word that means family, partnership, community, camaraderie, and sometimes all of those stuffed into one word, koinonia. And here, it's clearly not just a nebulous feeling. Uh, like sometimes Christians today, they, they, they leave a Christian meeting like a Bible study or whatever, and they say, oh, the fellowship was so warm. And all they mean is, I felt warm and fuzzy by being with other Christians. That's not what's being talked about here, because there's a, a, in the translation, there's a missing the, definite article. It says that they were devoted to the fellowship, not just a vague sense of fellowship, but the fellowship, a concrete partnership, family togetherness, not just an atmosphere. And one of the concrete expressions of this fellowship is, perhaps surprisingly, eating together. Do you notice Luke makes quite a bit of this? You might have thought he's just repeating himself because he forgot what he wrote. I mean, look at verse, um, well, it's the same verse, verse 42. Um, They were devoted to fellowship, and then it says, to the breaking of bread, right, and to prayer. And then glance down at verse 46, a few lines down, it says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What's all this breaking of bread? 
it's just a Mediterranean expression that means to eat together, right? Just like we use the word breakfast, not to mean when you break your fast, right? That's, I guess, what it originally meant, but just for your morning meal, or, or in my case, cereal at evening as well, right? So breakfast, um, like breaking of bread, it, it's just a colloquialism that means, well, in this case, eating together. But why are there two references to breaking bread? The first almost certainly refers to what we call communion, holy communion. You know that little meal with the tiny little cup and the little piece of bread and you eat it and remember Jesus' body and blood. But why does this refer to communion? Um, because there is a missing definite article again. The it, uh, He actually says, to the breaking of the bread. He's referring to a specific meal, and everyone who knows early Christianity knows that the specific meal they used to meet around was what we now call Holy Communion, the breaking of the bread. By the way, communion in the first several centuries was a real meal. Right? We know this because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul complains that people are getting drunk and overeating at communion, which would be impossible today, don't you think? But it was a real meal. And by the way, fun fact, this is a picture of the earliest church yet found, found smack bang in the middle of Israel. This is a reconstruction, but I want you to notice where the communion table is, right in the middle of the church hall. Not up here at the front, right in the middle. An indication that actually church saw itself as gathering around a meal called the breaking of the bread. Okay, cool. So what's the other reference to breaking bread? Down uh, in verse 46, uh, it says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There is no definite article missing here, right? In the original, it's just they broke bread, meaning they just had meals, and then we're told in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. This just refers to eating together. They liked each other's company. The fellowship expressed itself not only in a formal meal, but in just meeting with each other to share each other's homes and lives and food. This is an emphasis, surely, that comes from uh, Judaism. All of the first Christians were Jews, and Jewish culture is very big on eating and drinking together, okay? But it was supercharged in the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that? All the way through the Gospels, Jesus is in trouble for too many meals, particularly with the sinners. Here are just two passages of many. Luke 7, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and you lot say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Have you ever thought that the original Jesus could, could have been accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? Now, I don't think he was a glutton or a drunkard, but it's an indication that his opponents thought he went around eating and drinking a little too much. Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees these are the religious, very religious conservative people, and the teachers of the law, these are the professional uh, uh, instructors in the Jewish law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
for Jesus and for the first students, disciples, meals were a powerful sign of the fellowship. It communicated, it embodied family. And one really interesting spin in the life of Jesus is that very contrary to his surrounding culture, meals with sinners was not just permissible, but preferred as an embodiment of grace, of the invitation of family. As an historical aside, uh, we know that the fourth century pagan Roman emperor knew all about Christianity and was really worried that these meals that the Christians had together, this constant eating and drinking together with glad and sincere hearts in their homes, was going to lead Romans astray. And Emperor Julian wrote a letter to a pagan priest complaining and telling him to watch out for all that eating and drinking the Christians get up to. Here's a little bit of the letter. We must pay special attention to this point and by this means effect a cure, a cure of Christianity's expansion. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, pagan priests, then I think those impious Galileans, the Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. Look at this. The Galileans begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names, and the result is that they have led very many into this atheism. Uh, pagan emperors thought that Christians were atheists because they denied all the Greek and Roman gods. They thought there was just one God and there was no idol of that God, so like they, it was almost like they didn't believe in God. But um, Julian's point is that this family atmosphere, this the fellowship of eating and drinking, was leading people to Christianity, compelling Christian community eats together as a concrete expression of family. Holy communion, yes. The formal sign of our fellowship. In fact, the word communion and fellowship are the same word. They both come from koinonia, this, this word that's used here. Holy communion is the moment where the church says we are communing, fellowshipping with Christ and with one another around this meal celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection. But it doesn't end there because our fellowship expresses itself in casual, non-formal meals of eating and drinking just like family because we are family. Now let me make a little bit of cultural analysis that may mean nothing here because I'm a North Shore boy. And we know that many of the sins of the North Shore have not crept over here. But I grew up in Mossman, moved all the way to Roseville, and last year ventured as far as Kilara. Okay, so that's, that's my pad. And I'm here to tell you that on the front of meals, the North Shore is both spectacular and deficient. We swing between a fortress mentality and a master chef mentality. The fortress mentality says, no one's allowed to step on my property uninvited. Friends don't knock on doors. People dare not come to the door. It's a fortress. And then we suddenly arrange dinner parties 
where it's blooming master chef, where it has to be so extravagant, it's a performance almost. I might be being a little bit unfair, but just a little bit. The whole notion of, hey, just pop over whenever you like, we have soup and bread. Or spag bowl and magnums, right? That kind of casual meal where there's no performance to it, you hardly ever see. And as a result, I think, a little bit of worldliness has crept into the church and distorted the original vision. Sharing life. Sharing life. But more than sharing life, my second point, compelling Christian community shares resources. Shares resources. This fellowship Partnership, family, community, expresses itself in social care. That's what verses uh, 44, around verse 44, make perfectly clear. Glance down at that. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Huh. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So it's just as you feared. The first Christians were all communists. No. This was not compulsory. Home ownership was not frowned upon. Personal wealth was not frowned upon in Christianity. In fact, if we had time and we popped over to Acts chapter 16, we'd see a lovely story of a very wealthy woman named Lydia whose wealth is celebrated, whose personal home in Philippi is celebrated as a blessing. No, Acts 2 is just highlighting that believers were so convinced that they were family, they decided when they found people in need, they would move family resources around, just as any family would, to make sure no one suffered unassisted. They showed practical love. And friends, this became a huge part of the early church and a huge blessing to the history of the Western world. In Acts chapter 6, the second uh, passage from Acts printed in your sheets there. Acts chapter 6, it's clear that this uh, ministry of sharing resources for the poor became such a big deal, even in the first year of Christianity here in Acts 6, that the church had to appoint seven managers, seven managers to cope with the program. Uh, that passage was read, so I won't read it again, but basically the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians were arguing with each other because the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food that the apostles had arranged. So a little bit of racism in the first year of the church. Whew. And the apostles sorted out by appointing seven Greek speakers, all of them Greek speakers, to make sure this doesn't happen again. This is the first infrastructure decision of the early church. Seven specialist ministries to make sure no one slips through the cracks, that no one goes hungry, that no one is in need and not sorted. And this became the basis of what we call a deacon. You know, there are priests and there are deacons. And there are actually different ordination services. The deacon is actually meant to be a reflection of this passage who looks out across the parish for people who are in need and makes sure the church looks after them. Here is the, I mean, I know you can't see it. Um, this works on the giant screen up 
the road at St. Philip's, but not here. But this is the ordination service from the Book of Common Prayer, right? It's the, the standard for Anglicans. And um, in the deaconing service, you can see Acts chapter 6, or maybe you can't see, but trust me, on the right-hand side, your left-hand side, Acts chapter 6 is a central passage in the deaconing service. But then, when the bishop charges the deacon with, with the deacon's job, it's not teaching. That's the role of the priest. Yes, the, the deacon is allowed to instruct the youth in the catechism, is allowed to read the Bible in public, lucky deacon, but the main point of the deacon is cited there at the very beginning, and I can hardly read it here anyway. The bishop says, and furthermore, it is his office when provision is made by the church to search for the sick, poor, and impotent people of the parish and to intimate their estates, names, places, where they dwell, unto the curate, the local priest, that by his exhortations they may be relieved by the alms of the church, the charity of the church. That is the deacon's gig. And the church became famous for this ministry throughout the history of the Western world. Yes, it started in Jerusalem with that food service we read in Acts chapter 6, but by the time we get to the year 250 in Rome, when Christians are still persecuted, they don't own the Vatican yet, right? It's not like they're rich, they're still oppressed. We know from um, documents from the time, the church was feeding 1,500 people on a daily food roster. A massive food program. Even a little church like the one in Kerta, just over the sea, from uh, Italy in northern Africa, we have the most extraordinary piece of evidence, an actual transcript of a trial of Christians. Roman soldiers during an intense persecution barged into the church of Kerta looking for treasures because pagan temples had treasures down in the basement, gold and silver and so on, and so they just assumed churches would have it and they went down and we have in the transcript the treasures listed. This is what it says. We found 16 tunics for men, 82 dresses for women, 13 pairs of men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes, 19 peasant capes, 10 vats of oil and wine for the poor. You could say that the Romans really did find the treasures of the church. They had barged in on the charity room for the daily distribution of food and clothing. By the year 360, up in Cappadocia, in the central Turkey, the very first hospital is established by Bishop Basil. The very first public hospital, and, and it had six different departments. It was a little city. It had a leprosorium for local lepers. It had a, a place for the elderly, uh, very frail, it had a place for the truly sick, and they employed Greek doctors with good Greek medical knowledge to look after them, and several other sections. This became such a huge deal in early Christianity that by about the 6th century, canon law insisted that bishops were responsible for building a hospital in every diocese. So when you became a bishop, you had to make sure there was a hospital in your diocese. And by the time we get to the 12th century, there are literally thousands of public hospitals throughout Europe, 
all of them run by the church. Pagan Emperor Julian, again, wrote to another priest, the pagan high priest of Galatia, panicking that the Christians were going to overtake the empire through their being nice. Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, that's another ministry, by the way, the church ran free burials for people. It was a, a beautiful service. Uh, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase this atheism. I believe that we, pagans, ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. In every city, establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Now, let me make clear, the church hasn't always lived by these ideals of sharing life and sharing resources. Uh, there have been bullies among the saints, for sure. But these are the ideals to which the church always seems to return. One of the finest examples I've seen with my own eyes of this double principle of sharing life and sharing resources was the church I mentioned last week. I'm pretty sure I mentioned the King's Centre Chessington uh, in London last week. Extraordinary uh, group of evangelical Christians who approached the local council and said, how about we go halves in building a community centre and sports centre, which we will run free of charge for the wider community. They did it, and for at least 20 years, they've been running this extraordinary community center. The church meets in the heart of it, but the church then runs it for the wider community. And it's not just a sports center, they have all these ministries, it's gorgeous. They have um, Jacob's Well Cafe in the heart of it, uh, which is a place for uh, not just the church, but for the wider community to come and eat quality food. And actually you can go on TripAdvisor and you'll find a pretty good few reviews of um, this, uh, this cafe. They run a disabilities ministry every week. Um, people with a range of disabilities who wouldn't normally be able to uh, be catered for in a church context are uh, bust in and the church just loves and serves them. There's an arts and crafts ministry every week and there is a food bank every Wednesday morning around nine o'clock. You can turn up if, you're, if you have a GP letter or a, a social worker letter, and you can get a week's food that has been supplied by uh, church parishioners. And it's all centered on Jesus. It's a church of only about 700 people. I mean, it sounds like it must be like a mega church, but it's not. It's not. Now, the same emphases appear in your strategic plan. I don't know if you've read the strategic plan. You should have. Even, even I have read it, right? I'm a ring-in. It's great. It's not just beautifully designed, which I know everything is in this place. It is beautifully thought through. And the same principles that we're talking about in this passage are evident. It begins with discipleship. 
sure you can't see it, I know, but the first thing is discipleship. We've got to first be good students of Christ, good students of the apostles, because that guides and nourishes everything. But then the very next thing that flows from it is communities of love. Let me read from your strategic vision from this second section. We love compelling community, a church filled with the love of Christ. We love each other, asking what it means to be a community of Christ in this fractured world. Jesus said, you are a light of the world. You are a city on a hill. We want to express our life together in him. We want to do this, recognizing the challenges and opportunities in being a city church. Imagine, it goes on, if each of us was embedded into community, not just attending on occasion and demonstrating genuine life together in a miraculous way in this city. That sounds to me like the original way of the church. Precisely because you're committed to the teaching of the apostles, out of this comes the fellowship, the camaraderie, the family, the community, which is seen in sharing life with each other both in the formal meal of Holy Communion, but in the casual meals where we express family to one another. And also in sharing resources so that no one in our midst is ever left to suffer unassisted. That is the church, according to verse 47, to which the Lord added daily those who are being saved. Next week, we're going to look at that aspect, but it flows out of this devotion to the apostles' teaching and devotion to the fellowship, the sharing of life, the sharing of resources. So, Lord, will you please take these words and help us to understand them, to believe them, to will to do them, and to have power, indeed, to do them. Make us, in this community, people who express profound fellowship, sharing our lives with each other, sharing our resources. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.